This episode is brought to you by Rewind. Rewind offers e-commerce brands a solution that protects their stores against unexpected downtime. Rewind adds an undo button to your store, continually saving every change you make and backing up the critical data which runs your business. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 95 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Nicole Gibbons, the founder and CEO of Claire. Claire is a modern paint brand that's completely recreating the paint shopping experience with curated colors, technology-enabled design guidance, innovative peel-and-stick paint samples, and everything you need to paint delivered straight to your door. In this episode, Nicole shares with us her entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Detroit with aspirations to become a pediatrician, to working for Victoria's Secret for nearly a decade, to starting an interior design blog and services company that led to the concept of Claire. She talks about how a dinner with Tyra Banks led to a job working in PR, how she prepared to take the leap into entrepreneurship, how she came up with the name Claire, and her experience raising an $8 million Series A round. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show. I'm really excited in hearing your story and building Claire. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to share my story. <laughs> awesome. Where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? I grew up in suburban Detroit in a little suburb called Southfield, Michigan. And uh, it was a really great place to grow up. Very idyllic. You're kind of quintessential, very average American suburb. And what does that mean? Um, you know, grass, trees. We didn't have a picket fence, but a lot of little picket fences and relatively safe environment. Um and, uh, you know, strip malls and whatever you need five minutes away and all that kind of stuff, you know, really, really nice place to grow up. Um, I think relative to you know, kind of being, having been in New York City for the past almost 20 years, I think uh, where I grew up was a much calmer, safer, quieter. Strip malls. I like that you said that. 
Cause that's so accurate. And I never really realized that till you get out of the States and you're like, Oh wow. Like strip malls are like a thing. Love a strip mall. Like people think I'm crazy, but I love that you can go to a strip mall and do like three things at once. And you only have to park your car once. And it's just really convenient. Right. I know pre COVID times, you know, back in the day when walking around the mall was like the thing to do. (laughs) So what was it like growing up? Did you have siblings? What did your parents do? What was it like? Yeah. My parents were entrepreneurs. My dad is an accountant and he runs a, um, an accounting firm slash kind of CFO advisory company for a lot of like small businesses in Detroit. Those are a majority of his clients. And my mom works in the design business. So when I was young, she did interior design. Now she specializes in window treatments, which is very niche, but that's what she does. So I grew up around, you know, a creative mom and a dad who was very entrepreneurial, you know, handful of siblings. I have a sister that I'm very close to and a couple of siblings that are much older than me. And I'm also um, I'm very close to my brother, but um, yeah, just um, really kind of typical suburban upbringing, private school, all girls, Catholic high school, you know, decent education and all of that good stuff. Nice. And so your dad is a, sounds like an accountant, right? So does he do your books? I mean, that's a pretty convenient certain, you know, to have in the family. Frankly, I've, I've fired him off and on doing my personal taxes. No, he, he's great. <laughs> he, um, he's just very old school. And uh, I'm, I am the lowest priority of all of his clients. Oh. So. <laughs> Maybe one day you'll, you'll, you know, work hard enough to get on the priority list. I know, I know, but he's great. And he's, he's been very helpful and probably one of my like biggest supporters in this journey. That's awesome. And so with two entrepreneurial parents, were you that way as a kid? Were you entrepreneurial? Did you have the lemonade stand or what, what's your story looking back? Yes and no. I was less of a hustler and more of like a creative. So I would make things and sell them but not because I was like, I'm going to start a business and make money. It was because I'm like, I made all these things. And my, and I, I guess that's what you do as a kid, right? The, the whole lemonade stand theory. Like for me, it wasn't lemonade. It was, um, I made friendship bracelets and I would sell them. There was this stuff, I forget what it's called, but you get it from like Joanne Fabrics. It was like a plasticky. Um, yes. Wasn't it GIMP or something? Is it called GIMP? No, I don't forget what it's called. Wet it with hot water and then you mold it into shape. It's very malleable. Yes. So my sister and I used to make like earrings and brooches and all these little things that we would sell to my grandmother's church friends. So they would like wear them at church. Um, you know, so a lot of little stuff like that. I wanted to work before I was able to work. I think in Michigan, you had to be 14 to have a job. And, you know, so I babysat before I was 14. Um, the second I was able to work, I got a job at the mall working in retail. Which store? <laughs> so I worked at this store called um, Dolce Vita. And it was just like a little local store. They had a couple locations at different malls around Detroit, the Detroit area. And it sold basically like hot girl clothes. Like, <laughs> is this the same brand that also has shoes right now? Like they're, no, they're, they're a big they're company. Different? different? That, okay. That's a big company. This is just like a local Metro Detroit kind of retailer. And it's like, you, you're looking for a hot dress to go to the club in. That's where you go and buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so you had early access to all the cool looking clothes back in the day. Honestly, I was probably too young to wear those clothes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in retail too. I worked at Express at the mall. Okay. It's yeah. a great job to have, yeah. you know, sales, you got a customer service, you know, there's a lot of learnings. 
yeah, you learn how to interact with people. You learn how to be accountable. You know, I started off just like working the floor and then I became a, what do you call it? When you like work the register and then you like- Cashier. Yeah, cashier, I guess. You like kind of grow through the ranks and you learn how to take responsibility. So yeah, I, I had a great experience working at the mall. It was a very social job too. So I made a lot of friends and did a lot of networking. That's awesome. And so that was some of your first kind of, that was like your first job sounds like. And so what did you want to be when you grew up? So when I was younger, I actually wanted to be a pediatrician. That is the, the, like the number one thing. If you would have asked me for five years straight or 10 years straight as a child, I loved babies. I, my sister and I both were fascinated by both babies and childbirth. We used to watch these like documentaries. I don't know. Why is this? What, how did that happen? I think we just loved babies. And so then the, like the concept of how babies were born just became so fascinating. That must've been a really fun topic for your parents. (laughs) Well, my mom, there was this major documentary in the nineties that came out called the miracle of life. I don't know if you remember this, but it was the first documentary where they actually had like the technology to like actually take pictures inside of a womb, like video So they showed like the fetus, like literally in utero. And it was like revolutionary for the time. Now, like there's cameras, like when you go to the dentist, like looking in your mouth or whatever, like it's very commonplace. But at the time, this was like the first of its kind documentary to really see like the inner workings of like conception and childbirth, like in in an actual like video format. And so they followed around, you know, a couple women as they were kind of going through their, their pregnancies and then ultimately the childbirth. This is so far left. You know, the only movie I remember about that whole topic is It Takes Two with Christy Alley. Do you remember that <laughs> 95 yeah. movie from 95? Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty epic movie. But anyways, yeah. long, long story short, I wanted to be a pediatrician because I just loved babies and little little children. And so my whole education was centered around, you know, science and, you know, all the things that you, you think you are supposed to go deep in if you want to be a doctor. So that was pretty much my track until I actually went to college. And then I like started taking some advanced science classes my freshman year. And I was like, Ooh, this is hard. Do I really want to do this for like 12 more years? I don't think so. And then I started exploring other kind of passions and interests. And through those, uh, you know, kind of explorations, I started leaning more into, you know, kind of the the calling that I eventually found, which is this love for the home space. And where did that come from? So I think, you know, my mom's influence was huge. My grandmother's influence was huge. My grandmother was the consummate homemaker, you know, like little Martha Stewart, you know, uh, could cook anything, just an amazing home cook, kept a pristine home, um, had great taste. And I think that trickled down to my mother and then ultimately to me. Um, As a child, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to really good design, you know, being able to go to like show homes and the the showrooms where all the interior designers shopped, I would tag around, tag along with my mom. And, you know, I think I just started cultivating my eye very young. And, you know, I knew who a lot of the like design trade resources were from a young age. And I think that somehow stuck with me, but I never in a million years thought I would ever pursue that path. I thought I would do medicine. And then after medicine, you know, I think I was like easily influenced in in this era in the nineties, there was also this show on MTV called Power Girls. It was um, this PR woman who was like this, the daughter of like this like super wealthy businessman. And she ultimately ended up like driving through a crowd of people at P. Diddy's white party in the Hamptons and like went to something. But anyway, this reality show on MTV was about this woman who had a PR agency 
and it just looked so fun and so glamorous. And it was called Power Girls, like with, with uh, you know, the P and the R capitalized. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was like, PR, this looks so fun. I want to go to P. Diddy's white party. Yeah, like doing like red carpet parties. Like this is a job, like sign me up. So I started um, becoming really interested in public relations and just, and I was very interested in fashion. I used to watch E back when E was all about like fashion and style and the style channel and all these documentaries. I followed supermodels. I just like loved fashion and the kind of creativity behind designers and how they approached runway shows. And I was just like fascinated. So I ended up in college after I decided that medicine wasn't for me. I was like, you know, I don't really know what I ultimately want to do. Whatever I ultimately want to do is going to be entrepreneurial because the one thing my father always told me was whatever you do, don't ever work for someone else your whole life. Like you, you need to have your own business. And that was just like ingrained in my, my mind. So I kind of always knew that eventually I'd start a business, but I think being from this millennial generation, it was sort of like, I need to do something that I love. And I just didn't think I'd found that yet. So my goal was, let me just do something fun and interesting and where I can meet a lot of people and just learn good skills. And I don't need to figure out my whole entire life at the age of, you know, 20 or whatever. That's very good advice for those listening that are in their twenties. <laughs> you do not have to figure it out right now. I mean, here I am now 20 years later and I've pivoted careers like three times, you know what I mean? So like, you don't need to have it all figured out in college. You just need to be pursuing a path that'll give you options. I think that's the best advice I give to someone younger is like, choose a path that can help you build skills that are applicable, no matter what you end up doing in the long, long run. For me, that was PR. And I came out of school doing PR for Victoria's Secret, which was kind of a dream job at the time because all of the supermodels that I followed, like Giselle Bündchen and all of these people, I like came out of school and I'm like sitting in rooms with Alessandra Ambrosio. It's like Adriana Lima. Like big all time. when I, when I worked at BS, it was in the heyday of like Heidi Klum, Tyra Banks, Giselle Bündchen. Like, and I came straight out of school managing PR, like basically while I was an assistant, but like in, in the trenches of PR for this brand. That's crazy. How'd you land the job at Victoria's Secret? How'd that happen? So long winding road of networking. So I was, I've always been an overachiever and really ambitious. So I finished school a quarter early at Northwestern. And my last quarter, I did um, an internship for credit, even though I had all the credits that I needed. And so I came out to New York and because I was an overachiever, I did two internships. And so I worked two days a week at Kiehl's, the skincare company, three days a week at Interscope Records, both in their PR department. And then on the weekends, I worked at Michael Jordan's Steakhouse in Grand Central Station, which doesn't exist anymore. But I basically worked seven days a week because that is my work ethic. Well, and also to pay the bills living in New York City, it's like you have to anyways. I was couch crashing. So I was sleeping on a French couch, which, by the way, that was another yeah, sleeping on a couch a whole, you know, the whole quarter doing the whole nine and, and working and in, interning for free and then working at a restaurant two days a week for like pocket change, basically. And someone I worked for at Kiehl's knew someone who worked at the PR agency that worked for Victoria's Secret. So when they were looking for someone, you know, as people do, they put feelers out to their networks. And, you know, the, the person I worked with at Kiehl's was like, you should interview for this job. And I interviewed and I ended up getting the job. And it was like this serendipitous circle of events. The week I was interviewing, this is going to sound so crazy, but my best friend was a model who was friendly with Tyra Banks. So I went out to dinner 
with my best friend and Tyra. And I was like, I told Tyra that I was interviewing for this job with this woman who at the time was like running PR for VS. And I was like, can you put in a good word for me? And she put in a good word for me. I also interviewed, I think I had a really impressive like interview process because I was already kind of working in PR. One of the things you do in PR is you gift people. So like after my interviews, after all of my interviews, I gifted everyone Heels products and CDs from Interscope. Uh, back when nice. people had CDs, I did all the PR like things. You know, I was already operating like a publicist. So I ended up getting the job fresh out of school and I ended up being there for 10 years. So that's kind of how that all worked out. Do you think that would fly today? Do you think that strategy could still work if you really want a job to like send a gift? I don't think it was just the gift. Honestly, I was incredibly smart, ambitious, and like accomplished. And really had a good understanding of what the job entailed too. And I was the kind of person, I think like the big, big part about PR is you have to be able to figure stuff out and you have to be able to like talk the talk and, you know, and be able to like storytell and all of those things. And I think I was already kind of good at that. Obviously I did all the PR stuff. I kind of knew how to talk the talk because I'd had some PR internships, you know, in addition to the two that I mentioned, I, I also interned at this like really prestigious fashion PR agency called KCD. And, you know, I think that like as an intern for going out for a full-time role, I had three internships in three really amazing PR departments. So while I'm sure the gifts helped. Uh, Those internships definitely did a little more than that. Yeah. I think yeah. I was like very qualified and very like deserving of a, a good job, but I, I don't, I, I, I think that that could, couldn't have hurt. <laughs> It's a nice little you know, icing on the cake, right? Exactly. <laughs> awesome. And so you spent nine years at Victoria's Secret. Yeah. A couple months, ten years, like not like nine years and nine months. Wow. And so what was it like? I mean, you had these entrepreneurial parents. They're like, don't ever work for someone else. And here you are spending almost a decade working for someone else. I know. Well, so the way that things worked out is obviously in the beginning, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So it was really fun while I was 21, fresh out of school, living in New York, gallivanting around the world with supermodels. It's a great job. You know, kind of toward, uh, probably after like, I guess, I guess if I started there in 2003, by 2000, like six, seven, eight, I started thinking about what I really wanted to do. Um, and I definitely found my passion for design. I pretty much spent all my free time watching HGTV, buying coffee table design books and consuming every page, reading every design magazine. Like when Domino magazine came out, I was like obsessed. Yeah, that was a great one. It was amazing. In 2008, I started, it was just so fresh for the time because design is so stuffy. Like if you follow design media, like Architectural Digest had like a 90 year old editor in chief. Like, I mean, she wasn't really 90, but she's very, very old. And it just was a stodgy old industry and Domino made it feel young and fresh and approachable for someone like me who was super into design, but just didn't, didn't feel like there was anyone out there in this space that I could identify with. Yeah. So anyway, in 2008, I started a decorating blog as just like a creative outlet and a hobby. I also set up an LLC and started doing like a side hustle design business. I was spending all my free time consuming design content and immersing myself in the design industry. And by the time I started the blog and the side hustle, it was 2008. So it was the height of the recession. Um, and if people think the economy has been like a struggle post COVID, like good luck surviving 2008, 2009, you were young in your career. And so I was lucky that I 
felt valued in my role and I didn't feel like my job was at risk, which it wasn't. And so I was able to like do these things on the side, but it certainly wasn't the right time to like leave your day job to follow your passion and do a that like is a luxury for people like during a time when everyone was cutting back on everything. So I ended up sticking it out for five years doing that side hustle from 2008 to 2013. And it wasn't like a hardcore side hustle. It was, you know, nights, weekends, like a project here and there, you know, my blog on my own time kind of thing. But, um, you know, I think it was part feeling ready, like financially, but also feeling ready confidence wise. I needed to feel really prepared to take that leap versus just like taking a leap with no plan. So, you know, those five years gave me time to like get confident, to save money, to wrap my mind around this idea of like being on my own as an entrepreneur when all I had ever known was having a job since I was 14. And then, yeah. And so then in 2013 is when I took the leap to kind of do my own thing. All right. And so there's really just two things that, or is there more that you waited for? Cause I know there's a lot of people out there probably tuning in that are trying to figure out when is the right time to take that leap. Yeah. I think this was a little different though. Cause a lot of people, like I worked on this for years, whereas most people have a business idea and they either go for it or they don't. Most people don't like sit on and, and it was a service business. So in the, my, in the beginning, it wasn't like, I'm going to start a paint company. It was just like, I'm an interior designer. Right. And so I was sort of working towards that and it was less about starting a business and more about literally back to this idea of like following this passion than anything else. So for me, it took five years to feel ready. And does that mean that you were kind of working with customers on the weekends and you had kind of built up a customer base, let's say, to kind of help float you? And because it was a services business, right? So is is that part of the work? Yeah, I didn't even really build much of a customer base, to be honest. It was literally just like a client here, a client there paying me like no money because I didn't know even how to charge people back then. It was more about feeling like I had enough money saved to take the leap, like if I didn't make a dime for a year. That was like kind of a big like a big goal or, or, or something I needed to do to feel okay. So having a one-year parachute. Pretty much. And then, um, you know, just feeling like I, I could, and building credibility. So it was less about a building a client base and more about getting my name out there. So because I was working in PR, I knew how to promote myself. And so I was getting a little bit of press and recognition for myself, not just as a designer, but a design expert. People were tapping me for my opinions and things like that. So how did you do that? How do you do that? Can you kind of give us a little 101 on how to... Yeah, I mean, this is this is back in the day when like media was so different. There wasn't really a thing called influencers. Like, But a couple of things I did, which are sound so rudimentary, but back in the day, there weren't all these blogging platforms. I don't even remember if WordPress existed. It was a blogger. And like there, I was on this one called TypePad, but you would p- part of the way, and this was also before social media. I think like Twitter came out in like maybe 08, 09, I don't remember, but like there wasn't social channels to promote your blog. So the way that you built community back then was in the comments of your blog, the comment section. So you'd find blogs that you love and you'd start like chatting with people in the comments and making friends and like the community happened in the comments. So I started by just like building community. So even before I really established myself, I was a pretty active participant in the design community, which at the time lived within the comment section on some popular design blogs. If that makes any sense to people in this day and age where all you know is Twitter and Instagram or whatever. 
back in the day, you would read a blog post, scroll down to the comments and start weighing in and chatting with people. And that's what I did. So by the time I actually started my own blog, I had a community of people who knew who I was just from my like screen name and <laughs> back before they were called handles. And, you know, I sent a mass email to a bunch of people that I admire saying, Hey, I started a blog. I've been following you guys' blogs for years. Check, check it out. You know, would love for you to like support. And a couple of people wrote about me like, Oh, here's a blog you need to know, you know, people who were in a part of the community. Right. Another thing I did was there was this um, columnist, I am so blanking on her name, but she wrote for the home section of the Washington Post. And it was the section in the home section of the Washington Post was called Blog Watch. And she would highlight what design bloggers were talking about. And this was when design bloggers were this new unicorn breed of like people who were commentating on design. And so I had sent her a, a similar note of like, I started a blog, here's my background, check it out. And when I started my blog, I made sure I had a critical mass of content up already. So I got written up in the Washington Post. And, you know, I was part of this like PR circle. I knew how to reach media. So probably like less than a year, I had like a little blurb about me and my blog and real simple. And it just sort of grew from there. You know, I started making friends with all the home editors and getting to know people in the design community. And little by little, I built credibility and I built a name and I became really respected and you know, and, and it just sort of grew from there. What's a great way to get in front of some of those people, those editors from Washington Post, from, you know, the, some of those publications you got in front of? I think in today's day and age, Twitter is an amazing place to get in front of people. It is a fantastic place to build community. Twitter literally just launched a whole platform called Twitter Communities. Like social media has evolved so much since I first started becoming like a personality online. Uh, you know, the, the same basic premise exists. It's social media and it's putting yourself out there. I mean, we're in the COVID ages, so maybe don't do this, but like whenever COVID isn't a risk, go to events where they're going to be, you know, go to panels where they're speaking, talk to them after, network. That's a lot of the kind of stuff I did as well. Wouldn't necessarily endorse that in, in COVID times, <laughs> but, um, you know, just find ways to get in front of people. And it's, you know, often it's the squeaky grease, squeaky wheel who gets the grease, you know, and I was that wheel putting myself out there, telling every single person about my little blog and what my goals were and like, you know, putting it out there that, you know, I wanted to do television and all these other things. And, you know, that's sort of how it works. I'd say the advice I have for people listening is don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Um, The worst that can happen is someone doesn't respond to you. And like, if that happens, keep moving, reach out to someone else. Someone will get back to you at, at some point. And that's kind of the approach I took. I just relentlessly put myself out there. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Have you ever experienced lost sales due to downtime caused by a corrupt CSV, malicious attack, or rogue third-party app? Even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That's why brands like Pier One Import, Lord & Taylor, Hasbro, and Staples use Rewind to keep their store protected. Rewind gives you peace of mind, protects your data, and saves you time and money by easily restoring your data, automatically backing up and keeping a record of every change you make. Get a 30-day free trial with Rewind today by going to rewind.io slash stairway to CEO. That's R-E-W-I-N-D 
stairwaytoceo.io slash stairwaytoceo. Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, bug shield blanket to keep those mosquitoes away. Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a thousand outer customers' backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So how did you go from building this blog and kind of, you know, building that audience to, hey, I'm going to start Claire. What was the inspiration and what was your aha moment where you're like, this is what I need to do now? Yeah, it's funny. I always had the plan, but I didn't have the steps in between. I didn't have the like granularity of the plan, but I knew I was going to start my own business. And then once I became an interior designer full-time and started my design firm, I knew that I wanted to um, build a brand and have physical products. And the business model that I really admired was Martha Stewart's. When Martha kind of built her brand, she started off as a food personality. And now she literally has products in every category you can think of down to like, I think she has like some CBD stuff with Snoop Dogg. I don't know. I might be making that up, but like she's literally does everything from like pet supplies to like office supplies at Staples to like, you name it. So you sold a blog as a way to wedge your way in towards building the services business and then also a brand. Yeah, I think so. I always saw it as a platform upon which to build a personal brand. And that personal brand would ultimately help promote my business. And that would all, you know, it all kind of is intertwined. And this was in the early days of like media where people didn't really know how to leverage it. But I think I innately understood the power of those channels because I was a PR person. So I understood how to like amplify a message and how to tell a story and all that kind of stuff. So my plan wasn't to start a paint company, but it was to build a business, have physical products. And more importantly, I was very clear that I wanted to build a mass brand. I read, um, I remember reading, well, I always followed Martha's career, but I remember reading the like Jerry Oppenheimer biography on her. And, you know, they, there was a whole section where they were talking about how she took her brand to Kmart and everyone thought she was like over, like, cause you know, when she started out, you know, she was a little bit higher end. It was more prestige. It was, you know, aspirational. And then she's like, I'm going to create a brand for Kmart. And people were like, your career's over. 
Right. That was such a thing back in the day. It was like anybody who, I mean, this has kind of been a thing maybe for a long time, right? Where it's like, oh, you start at the cream of the crop, but then you want to sell mass. Oh, you're just done. You're done. So you're selling out. I told her she was done. So, and it was like the most successful thing in the history of like, you know, licensed collections or whatever. And at the time, and I always thought that was brilliant, right? Like this idea that you could have a select few people who could afford right? Like a niche audience who can afford your luxury product extension, or like literally have your products in every home in America or accessible to every home in America. Like the latter was far more exciting and appealing and interesting to me. So my goal at the time was I want to build a brand that's mass enough to go into like the Kmart or a Target or a whatever. So you weren't ever thinking I've got to create like some cream of the crop brand, then I'm going to go to the mass. Like you didn't think that way. You're like, I'm just going to go straight mass. Yeah. And like a lot of people, it's like, especially in design, design is so pretentious. Like, so it's like, I want to do a line for Barney's or like this trade only fancy, fancy company that like the average person can't even set foot inside unless you're working with a designer, you know? And so I just like, it just didn't excite me. It wasn't accessible. And yeah, I just knew that I wanted to build something big and I wanted the idea that I could take a little slice of my aesthetic and scale it to the masses was far more appealing than having some like fancy schmancy thing on the shelves at like a, a Barney's or whatever. So kind of walk us through, I assume you have this blog, you build it up to a certain point, you started doing the service part of the business that you had in mind. And at what point, when was that moment where you're like, I'm going to start paint? Paint is the product. Yeah. So I think I thought about a bunch of ideas off and on that nothing ever stuck, stuck. In 2016, I just had this light bulb moment because I'd already been thinking about different business ideas. I was, I also had made this decision that I wanted to pursue building a venture that startup because the way market built your business is licensing. And with licensing, you know, maybe, maybe it works for a lot of people, but you have a little bit of a hand in the creative process. You put your name on it, you take like a percent, you know, and, and like, I'm sure when Martha built her companies, like she had really good deals, but now licensing royalties are like, paltry. Like you're lucky if you get like 6%, you know, in a good deal. So for me, the economics of licensing didn't appeal to me as much. I didn't want to just like put my name on something. I really wanted to build something from the ground up because I'm crazy. Like most entrepreneurs doing what I'm doing have to be to, to, to believe that you can actually build a paint company. And um, so a bunch of ideas didn't pan out. And then I had this light bulb moment. I had a friend or this person who was like, had just moved into an apartment, was asking for questions about or for recommendations on paint colors. And I don't know why my first instinct, because I had colors to recommend, but my first instinct was to go to the company's website to show them the colors that I was recommending. And I went to this company's website and it was a terrible web experience. And as a designer, I wasn't really going on the websites to look for paint. I like, you know, there was a showroom and, you know, I, I knew where to go. I had fan decks and stuff like that. So like, I never really had to look around for color you know, swatches or whatever. So I couldn't, the, the website was just such a terrible experience. I started thinking immediately about like, why is no one selling paint online? Why is this website in 2016 look like it's from 2006? This is an awful experience. This feels like the right market opportunity. And, you know, it was in the early days of D2C. So, you know, Warby was around, uh, you know, there were just a couple of D2C brands in the first wave of direct consumer. You know, I think Bonobos was a, was a brand at the time. And like, you know, so immediately I was kind of like, what 
what can I take that concept? Like, what can I apply that kind of simplified shopping approach to in home that is a category where it is truly awful to shop for? You know, you think about furniture, all these other things, and I'm certain there are plenty of opportunities to build better brands. But paint really felt like a broken buyer journey. It was a industry dominated by 100-plus-year-old incumbent. Home Depot. Home Depot. Yeah, I don't know where else to buy paint other than Home Depot. <laughs> other than Brands, though, the brands that are sold in Home Depot, the brands that are sold in places like Lowe's, they're 100-plus-year-old companies. And the way that they manufacture, operate, market, distribute, message their products is so archaic. And even that like big box store home improvement center experience, shopping for paint is awful. It's overwhelming. And so I immediately thought about all the ways I could make it better. Came up with this idea, sat on it for a whole entire year, almost a whole entire year, most of 2016. And then in January of 2017, I was kind of like, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to go and try and build this business and take some time off from everything else I was doing. So uh, wound down a couple projects that were ending and decided to just like spend time exploring this opportunity. And after probably like less than a month of doing diligence on the market and talking to a couple of people, I was all in. Nice. And so what were some of the first steps that you took to build the business, create the product and get going? So learning, I started with learning everything I felt like I didn't already know. That's everything from learning about paint manufacturing and paint chemistry to learning about how to raise capital because A, I don't come from a network where I have a high net worth friends and family circle. And I also knew that this isn't the type of product you can like cook up in your kitchen or like make in your living room. So I knew that I would need capital. And honestly, I was so naive about the process. I didn't even know what it entailed, but I was just like, I'm going to go raise venture capital. I'll start this business. You know, I think like part of the like, blind optimism as a founder is just believing you can do it. So yeah, I never once didn't think that I wasn't going to raise the money. And I think that like crazy thinking is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what happened after a few meetings where people maybe, you know, started to say no, did you ever like, "Mm, maybe I'm off here or. What was interesting is, so I spent the whole year, so call it January to September, just building, just building like behind the scenes, talking to people, working, learning, going to everything from like trade shows, visiting factories, like trying to get people on the phone, even like imagine like trying to find partners to help you manufacture a product. And you're like, yeah, hi, my name is Nicole. I'm from New York. I mean, this isn't exactly how the conversation went, but like, I'd like to start a paint company. Will you help me manufacture our product? Like get in line. (laughs) You know, like no one took me seriously. Everyone was like super sketched out. Like people were like, who are you? Like, what are you trying to do? So it was, um, it was just a long journey, even to just like find the right people to consider as partners. And so by the time I went out to raise capital, I had a foundation of a supply chain. I had like all the major players who were going to help us bring our product to market lined up. I had a team to build the website. I sort of went about selling this vision to everybody else, but the VCs before I went to the VCs. So by the time I like went to talk to venture to raise, I had like a team with a really great background on board to build the site, even though I hadn't paid them a dime. I had like renderings of what the brand would look like. I had um, a financial model. It's important to get as many things as possible. I always try to say this to founders. It's like do as much as you possibly can without money. 
and then get the money, right? Like, because they're going to ask what you've done. And if you just sat around, like they don't want to invest in someone who just sits around, you have to get going to action. No one can invest in an idea, right? They need to know that like your, your idea is either to the point of ex- execution, which like raising pre-product is very difficult. There's not even a big niche of investors who invest before there's traction. So it, it was a small window of even opportunity and people who would consider investing at such an early stage. Most investors need to see a little bit of traction before they'll write me a check. So I went about it just so blindly and naively, but also like confidently. Like I really felt like I was building a business that was game changing. I felt like there was no one else out there with a similar story. I felt like even if people have a similar idea, there is no better founder fit than me to be running this business. And I just like was really confident in, in those things. And I think that confidence also helped me. You know, it didn't mean I had all the answers and everything figured out. There's a million things I didn't know and a million things I wasn't confident in, but I was super confident that I was building a business that I felt would transform this industry that I felt truly believe was solving a problem for people. And I had a foundation. I knew we were like, I had everything lined up and ready to like press go. I just needed capital. And so I was able to tell a really compelling story. I think the paint market, we're talking about $165 billion global market that literally hasn't changed, has seen zero innovation. And frankly, I think I was raising at a time when VCs were kind of like throwing dumb money at startups that fit like the Warby Parker for X or Uber for Y box. And, you know, not really knowing or if it would pan out, they were just sort of investing in like a business model more than like, you know, and that was probably a pro and a con, right? Because at the time you could say, oh, it's the Uber for this and the Warby for Y and people would immediately get it. But then at the same time, were they truly invested in your business or in the market or were they just investing in the next market opportunity? And I think like the big learning there was like just around how important it is to have the right investors who are truly aligned with your long-term vision building the business and not just like the right now, like, oh yeah, this sounds like a great idea. I'm in. But ultimately, by the time I started having those conversations, it was around September of 2017. And there was a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, there was certainly a lot of no's too, but I think there was enough encouragement of like, huh, this is a really interesting business idea. This is a fascinating market. I had no idea the paint industry was so big. There were enough nuggets of interest and intrigue and like wanting to dig deeper into what I was building that I didn't feel like it wasn't going to happen. So there was certainly a lot of no's. I think we ended up with four funds and like four angels that both invested as like groups to duos, like the two founders of two of the five Harry's, sorry, two of the five Casper co-founders and then the co-founders of Harry's both angel invested kind of like together sort of. Basically, it was a small cap table is where it's going. It wasn't like 100 investors or a party round. It was just a handful of people. So to get to those like six or so, you know, yeses, I probably talked to 30 people. That's pretty good for being so early. I think that's really good. It's hard to find early money. And it's really important to build relationships early so that when you're really needing the check, they're ready to write it. Otherwise, you're waiting another six months. Yeah. I mean, I think too, what helped is like, I got that first term sheet really early. So once that happened, like probably in my first month, not probably in September is when I got a term sheet. So what's been one of the most challenging moments in in building the business? Like when did things go wrong and how did you turn it around? 
So I don't know. Well, I guess, yeah, a lot of things go wrong, but it's, it's all in how you frame it. It's like, did it go wrong? Or was that just a lesson you needed to learn to get to the next step or the next milestone? Right. Like, so, I mean, a ton of stuff. And, and I still think despite my early process with fundraising, fundraising in general and managing investors and investor relations has not been easy. And the further along you get, the harder fundraising becomes, even if you are that like next hot startup idea in the beginning, you really have to demonstrate that you have a business that with, with potential or else you will very quickly lose, people will very quickly lose conviction in your business. It's, it's a game of like FOMO. It's like you're hot or you're not. And there's not a lot of in-between number of things. So funds are invested in tons of businesses and they're, they're hoping one or two will pop off. And if you're somewhere in between, you're not going to get a lot of attention. Right. If you're lukewarm, no one's going to really pay attention. So how did you convey or that fear of missing out or that you're the, this company is the next hot thing? Well, I would say in the beginning, it was easier because I didn't have anything to show, right? There was no business. There was nothing to doubt. It was just a brilliant idea. They were investing in me. Once you launch, and most companies are not instant rocket ships. It is very rare. You know, you, you'll hear about certain success stories or whatever, but it is very rare that a company launches and then immediately a month later, they're a billion dollar business. I mean, it's happened, I guess. I don't know. But like most trajectories of most founders and most companies are very up and down. So we started with this like big wave of interest and excitement and momentum and traction. And then it was like not. And then, you know, it was, it was, we had a lot to learn and a lot to figure out and a lot to optimize. And I think the team probably wasn't where it needed to be. For, for a decent amount of time. And like, if you don't have the right people, you're not going to execute. So there's just a lot of learning, um, a lot of challenges on that front, which made fundraising more challenging as things, as, as time went on. And, uh, but ultimately I think everything circled back to the original vision and then being able to get to a place where we had built enough proof that this business had legs and then it was really about finding the right investors to back me. And then- so you're, you're raising a big round now. Can you talk about that and where you're at and what it's been like? Yeah. So we recently closed our Series A, which is super exciting. Congratulations. It's huge. Can you tell us more about it? How much and what the process was like? That's a really big round and it's, it's tough to, to pull it through. So can you kind of share your experience and any advice you have? Yeah. And it was a rocky road. So just to like backpedal a little bit, we were, we had an amazing 2020, right? The year of COVID, everyone was stuck at home. Everyone was buying paint. We grew 550%. So really big year for us. But then 2021 was full of challenges. It was like operational challenges, supply chain, you know, team transition. We, we've always been a super tiny lean team. So we were operating as mostly like a four person team with the help of like a bunch of consultants and freelancers. And I think the optics of our business would have, was that it was way bigger than what we really kind of were internally. And there was just some natural attrition. We were hitting year three, you know, people move on. And so going through a lot of challenges all at once, team, ch- team changes, operational challenges, uh, supply chain woes, you know, 2020 was awesome. 2021 sucked. <laughs> So we weren't like probably well positioned to go out and like raise the strongest A round in the, in, you know, in the, in the world of venture. But I felt there was enough there that if we found the right partner to believe that we could do it, but I was sort of pursuing two simultaneous paths. So 
probably because I lacked the confidence that like I could get the aid done or there, there, maybe there wasn't like as much interest to give me the confidence. So it was sort of like, okay, we're going to do, I'll, I'll either, I'll spiel out the market for a smaller round. And then if I can find the right fit for an A, that that's the, the goal. That's the ideal scenario. But if not, I'm going to go and sell this vision of like, we're going to do a smaller round and then go out for the A next year. Like a bridge round or something? Like how yeah, would you call it? Pretty much whatever you want to call it, bridge, seed three, you know, because we did a seed, seed, pre-seed and a seed, whatever. I don't even know how they're called, like alphabet soup of like venture rounds, but um, you know, some people call it an extension. Some people, now I've heard this I term, feel like those are, n- what term? I've heard the term pre-series A recently. <laughs> oh God, if we're doing a pre-seed and a pre-series A, my God. Yeah, I don't know what to call it, but yes, basically in the olden days, they'd call it a bridge and that's that. But I think that's the reason they're trying to not use those words. Bridge, I think, has a bad connotation and maybe extension does, too. It's like, oh, you didn't raise enough the first time. Right. Or it's not a really great positive, I think, like word. So I can see why people want to change it up and call it something else. Yeah. So I think but I kind of never really like even focus. I wasn't going out to investors being like, we're raising a bridge. I would just be like, we're raising a round of funding. And like that was that. Right. And you go and you tell your story. So I wasn't like hung up on like the, the stage of funding. But they always ask, right? Like every investor is like, oh, so what stage are you in? Like what round are you raising? I mean, frankly, the amount of money you're raising dictates the stage kind of, right? If you're just raise a couple million based on wherever your revenue is at and where your last valuation, you you kind of like- It has to match the the stage, right? Because otherwise yeah. it's like, huh, you're raising what? And it's what stage? Yeah, then it's a kind of a weird flag to investors that maybe you don't know what you're doing almost if it's not fitting in the right kind of range of where you're at. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of went out with that and I, and I basically told investors, okay, look, I'm, I'm kind of having a couple conversations, parallel pathing, you know, potentially this idea of a smaller round, or if the right partner materializes would you know, the goal is to really get an A done. And there was a lot more interest, frankly, in the smaller round of funding. Um, I probably could have gotten that closed up way quicker, but I was really holding out for, um, to try to make the A happen. I had a couple of things I was really looking for this time around. So with our seed investors, great people, but I do feel like I felt like what I really wanted to ensure this time around, because, you know, at the A, at the A stage, you're going to have, they're going to have board seat, the much more formal governance. It's a deeper relationship, you know, really a more critical phase of growth. And I wanted to make sure that the investors I had around the table for this round were very aligned with my vision for how I want to build the business and our growth. There was a day in the early days of D2C where growth at all costs was the motto. Profitability didn't matter in air quotes, but even but it actually really does matter when you're building a consumer business. Like no matter how you try to slice it, like if you're trying to have a long-term sustainable business or you want to have like a really positive exit, like you you can't not care about your bottom line like that. And I, I came from a very traditional retail environment where, you know, at Victoria's Secret, where it was all about like improving your margins. And like, you know, when you're a company that's that mature, you're not growing at the same kind of fast clip that a startup is. So your growth opportunity is limited, right? Maybe you can go international or there's things you can do to like build your growth, you know, extend, extend your growth or maybe acquire some a, a company or whatever. But like what really moves the needle when you're a mature company is managing that your bottom line and like managing expenses and, you know, a lot of other things. So 
I always had those like really solid retail fundamentals in, in the back of my mind. And I never thought this idea of, of not caring about <laughs> your profitability and like over, you know, spending way more than you make for a really long time made sense to me. So, you know, I was looking for investors who were focused on building sustainable business is more measured growth. Um, that was key. Another thing that was really important to me was I really wanted to diversify my cap table. Venture ecosystem is very white and very male and very stacked against people like me because of all the inherent bias that exists. And so, you know, I experienced a lot of that in my time, my short time in this venture, venture ecosystem. And I felt like I'll shout out my, my friend, Denise Woodard, who she's the founder of this company called Partake Foods. And she was telling me about her journey. Um, we were actually on a panel together and then we kind of became friendly after, but she's talking about her journey and how, you know, it was difficult for her to raise money in the beginning. And she just felt like she would go in these rooms. People wouldn't take her seriously. They would see straight through her. They wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, give her this, the, the same type of respect and, and, and attention that like, you know, other founders were getting. And then she said, she started talking to seeking out black investors and just like how game changing and life changing that was for her in her business never really crossed my mind, especially when I was raising in 2017, there weren't very many diversity funds. There weren't any, there were like barely any black general partners at funds. Like there was just not enough diversity in venture. And, you know, we still have a long way to go, but like, I'd say in those like three or four years since there's definitely been some improvements and new players who've come to the table or, or like carved out their own seat, like couldn't get a seat at the table. So built their own tables, so to speak. So she really cemented this idea in my mind that like potentially like seeking out diverse investors would be a good, a good thing for me and like life-changing and game-changing for my business. I think just to have, to be able to show up in a room and be your truest self and not feel doubted, feel, you know, not feel like people are questioning your ability to build the business that you're, you're building and just be able to focus on the stuff that really matters without having to like feel judged or justify. And I don't know, just, there's a lot of um, extra mental gymnastics that comes along you know, being a woman of color in this ecosystem. And I just didn't want that to have to play into my day-to-day anymore. So it was really important to me to, to seek out diverse investors. And we ended up with a fantastic team of people, a Black-led fund who led our Series A. And I, you know, initially envisioned something like that, maybe being a check in the round, not leading the whole round. So it is incredibly meaningful for me and it's still a new relationship, but from day one, I've been able to show up as my like truest, fullest self and not feel judged and, you know, feel entirely supported and feel like there's a team around me that is 100% aligned with my vision. That's amazing. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I can be more excited. Yeah. I remember, I mean, I fundraised back in like 2014. It was like tough to find any, even just female investors at all. Like it's such a, it's really tough to be in those rooms. Congratulations on this round. It's incredible. Are you allowed to say how much you've raised? This round was $8 million. Wow. That's a big one. Really, really crazy. Especially if you think about, you know, just the data points around um, people of color raising capital, you know, the, the data point is that like black women in particular get like two tenths of 1% of venture dollars. So to just have completely bucked that trend, feels really good. And 
you know, and, and to feel like I've got great partners around the table is also really, really rewarding. That's really cool. So what are the plans with all the cash? What are you going to do? Hire great people, which take are over the world, building a fantastic team. Uh, yes. Take over the world, take over the <laughs> world. Um, really, honestly, not, not kidding. Just build the world's best paint brand. That is what we are out to do. That is our mission. We want to make clear the best place to buy paint, you know, continue building on our product assortment, you know, expanding into new channels. There's so much opportunity for us. And now we finally have the capital resources to be able to take advantage of a lot of the opportunities and build an A, a plus team and, um, and all of those things. So, so talk to us about Claire, what, what can we expect? You know, we, we've got a lot of new things in the works that I can exactly talk about, but launching some new products, um, you know, really kind of going beyond B2C is going to be a big focus for us. You know, uh, we, we want to be able to meet our customers' needs where they are, you know, but ultimately just continuing our mission of like fewer, better paint colors and, you know, premium paint that's better for you, zero VOC, Green Guard Gold certified, you know, making sure that we are uh, making products because paint is a chemical product you know, a product that we feel really kind of proud of and that we that that people can feel safe having in their homes because paint is pretty toxic not our paint I mean <laughs> that's what I'm saying that's the difference right there's a lot of differences that you have with your brand you have a quiz that you can take you've got the try before you buy which is super interesting yeah, we've simplified a lot we've made the journey really easy curated colors easy sampling you know technology and like expert guidance through the process and you know we, we think that that's one of the things that really sets us apart we're a designer-led brand I think a lot of startups start from this like personal pain point of like, oh, I couldn't find a toothpaste. So I decided to start a toothpaste company or whatever. Like, you know, I've been invested in this home space for at this point, more than a decade, um, probably 15 plus years. My, my whole career is built around helping people create beautiful spaces and, you know, making, um, making the, the journey of upgrading your home easier. Um, and so that's what we're doing with Claire. It's really just a continued continuation of my own personal mission back like being in a job in PR but like fantasizing about interior design every day like this is such a such a passion project for me and so I certainly want to see it be successful but we just want to continue helping people everywhere see our product in homes all over and how did you come up with the name Claire so it was this intentional effort to not sound like other paint brands it was wanting to create a brand that sounded friendly approachable a name that was easy to remember, a name that you could build a brand personality around and a whole brand persona around. Is there someone named Claire in your life that you that kind of inspired you? I just like looked up like baby names. I, looked, I went on like a baby naming website and I was looking for words that also tied back to this deeper idea of color. So Claire, com- Claire comes from a Latin word that means um, bright and brilliant. So there's a lot of word play there, both in terms of color, but in terms of being like innovative and forward thinking. And when you think about every other paint brand, it's this hyper-masculine male name, Benjamin Moore, Sherwin Williams. <laughs> Who are those guys anyways? <laughs> we do not want our brand to sound like a dude in a plaid shirt. Thank you very much. We, um, right. And and right. <laughs> Sounds like a white dude. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, right? Gray, so, gray hair, sitting in a rocking chair. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... All right. So tell me about, you know, we talked about, I don't know if we've really touched on some like specific challenges. I know you mentioned like um, operationally with the team and stuff like that. What's the lesson that you've kind of learned the hard way? Can you tell us about a time 
when you've, you know, have to learn something the hard way or had got tough feedback? I think hiring has always been a really tough challenge and something people don't talk enough about. Every founder I talk to privately has a HR nightmare story. (laughs) It's always, it's just so hard because you're a founder. You're so passionate. You have this amazing idea and you need people who care almost as much as you do because you're, no one's going to ever care as much as you do as a founder. You need people who care a lot and who are smart enough and have enough leadership skills, no matter what level they're at to actually like execute and get things over the finish line. So I'd say the biggest, and I hate to call them mistakes, more learning lessons, but making hasty hiring decisions, because I felt like I needed a body in the room, you know, not really having a rubric through which to evaluate people, um, you know, just, um, uh, maybe not even seeking the best talent because like for a while, um, you know, even though it sounds like, Oh, I've been so successful raising capital, we thrived off of like such a small amount of funding for like three years. Like most people, I mean, we made our little seed rounds last a very long time. So especially during the year of COVID, we were pretty capital constrained. Um, so we didn't have resources to like go and hire a million people and pay them top dollar and all that kind of stuff. So you know, I made some scrappy decisions, hiring a freelancer when I really should have invested in a full-time hire or, uh, you know, uh, not bringing things in house soon enough. And then kind of feeling like I lost an opportunity to really like build something when the timing was most critical. Um, so I'd say like, those are, those have been the toughest decisions are the most painful and costly from a time perspective. Um, having the wrong person in the role can really set you back. Um, and that I think has been the toughest lesson that I've learned. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before I know we're at time here, before we wrap up, just would love to hear what's some final advice that you have for any entrepreneurs um, tuning in. You've also, you've already shared so much great insight, but curious if you have any final advice and then, you know, what can we see next from uh, Claire? I know you mentioned a few products. I know you can't tell us too much, but I guess, what can we look out for? Yeah, I would say the best advice I would have to give other founders is, absolutely maintain your conviction in what you're building. You are going to be met with so much rejection, so much skepticism, so many people who don't believe what you know to be true, remain unwavering in your belief around your your business, what you're building, and and just kind of never lose sight of your mission um, because that's what will keep you grounded and keep you going even when things get really, really hard. I'd say also, this is advice that I struggle with taking, but like really try to find time to unplug as you need because it is so easy to get burned out, especially when you're small, especially when you have a small team. And so uh, it's like the whole like, you know, airplane analogy, you, you gotta put your own mask on before you can help someone else. Don't allow yourself to burn out. That's also another tough lesson I've learned. You really, did you burn out? Um, yeah, I mean, I think like somehow I have an incredible amount of stamina, but I've definitely had periods of burnout. I mean, even the toughest people, you can have as much stamina as you want. You can still burn out. I mean, it's, it's actually, I think the people that have a lot of stamina that actually burn out because they're trying, they think that it's an endless stamina, right? Yeah. It's not so it's not like I've burned out to the point of like a breakdown, but I've burned out to the point of like my health has suffered and I, you know, uh, wasn't taking care of myself and a lot of just stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, if you're overworked, you simply can't work your best. You can't think properly. You don't use your time wisely. You're just, it's all messed up. It's like being jet lag, you know, it's just not helpful. Yeah. 
No, it's not. And then I would say in terms of what people can expect, expect for Claire, I would say just stay tuned, stay tuned to our site and our socials. We're launching some cool new stuff, um, new products. Um, you know, we, we hope to have a bigger presence um, in the retail landscape. So just kind of keep an eye out for, for all those good things. Cool. Well, um, I love what you guys are doing. Your branding is gorgeous. Thanks so much for sharing your amazing story on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.